Well, last month when Tiffany and I were back in the States, we were visiting my sister Hannah and her husband AJ. And as we were there, I was reminded that, my, that they live like right in front of a, a small little airport. And so this airport has like a single jet engine for the planes that fly around. I don't know if you know the planes that like fly around with like advertisements hanging from the, from the wing and those sort of things. Like that's the planes that land there. And I was reminded of the first time that we visited my sister and her, her husband in that house. And we're just hanging out. We're having a meal together. And the next thing I hear is uh, there's like this massively loud noise. And I know it's an airplane. And I just look, I, I feel like terrified. I'm like, this is about to fly straight into your window. Like, this is about to go bad. I am like terrified. I'm afraid. And I'm like, Hannah, what is that? She's like, what do you mean? I was like, what do you mean? What do I mean? You hear that noise. And she's like, oh, yeah, there's, there's an airport right behind us. And I'm like, okay, how do you deal with that? And she's like, I don't know. I've just, just kind of gotten used to it. I just kind of, you know, after living here for a while, you just kind of get used to it. You, you tune it out, a little bit of white noise, I suppose. Uh, and so she was just completely used to it. And I, I was terrified again when we were visiting because I just heard these airplanes, thought it was flying into the living room. And this week, I, I was reading about people who live next to train tracks. Kind of the same idea. Really loud, really obnoxious noises that come at most random times. And this person posted this form asking this question. We have found the perfect house. It's our dream house. The only problem is it's right next to a train track. And so they were asking, how bad is it? Like, will we get used to it? Is it something that we should do? Like, and so people were commenting, tons of different people were commenting. I was like, it'll take a little while but like you won't even hear the trains anymore. Like it'll just zone out. You won't, you won't hear it anymore. And people were talking about, it took us just a few weeks before we didn't even hear it. it some people said it took just a good few days. They had a few rough night sleeps, but after that, they, they didn't hear it. They said, when our visitors come, it's terrible for them when they're trying to sleep. But for us, we, we sleep fine. And they just began to, to zone it out and, and not really pay attention to it anymore. And in a lot of ways, the book of Deuteronomy, this is what it's doing for us. It's reminding us not to let that happen because we all too often just begin to, to zone things out. We just kind of tune out and it's like, okay, we've known these things. We've heard these things. Like we just get used to hearing it so much, so long that we just like kind of tune it out a little bit. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it's Moses's last sermon. Moses has led the people for 40 years. He's gone through all kinds of different things. He's given them one last one last moment, one last hurrah, one last, last statement, one last thing to cling on to, to make sure that we just don't tune it out, that we make sure we just don't zone out. In fact, we find out in chapter 31 that the book of Deuteronomy is to be read to the people every seven years. Why? Because we need, we need reminding. Because we began to just get used to airplanes flying over the house. We, get, we began to get used to, to uh, trains going by our house. Like we just begin to zone it out. And so we have to be reminded. And so that's what this book is, is doing for us. As we walk through this book, I, I think it's fascinating about the way that God just knows us. Like he knows our hearts. He knows our tendencies. He knows our temptations. And we read through this book. There's these things called city of refuge, where if somebody dies on accident or if somebody kills someone, if it's, if it's like manslaughter, it's an accident, people can go to a city of refuge so that the loved ones of the people who died don't try to kill them in revenge. And God, he in his mercy, he's setting these things up because he understands our, our mess ups. He understands how we are as people. And so the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it speaks to the heart of truly who we are and what, we, what we're like. And so last week we looked at chapters one through four, where Moses, he, he looks back. 
He looks back and he sees like, here's what has happened in the history of a people. Here's what has happened to your ancestors. You're now invited into this. And then we get to chapters 5 through 11 today. And he no longer is looking back, but he moves to looking within. He's like, it's time to look at the heart. It's time to deal with ourselves personally. It's time to look at our relationship with God. Chapters 1 through 4 were setting up. We have been invited into this relationship with God. 5 through 11 talk about how we are going to live in the light of that relationship. How do we act? How do we, how do we function in this relationship that God has for us? So verse 1 of chapter 5, it starts this way. It says, Moses called all the people of Israel together and said, Listen carefully, Israel. Hear the decrees and regulations I am giving you today so you may learn them and obey them. You catch that phrase? Listen carefully, Israel. Or, oh, Israel, listen. Maybe you, maybe you caught that. And maybe it reminds you of, of some of Jesus' parables where Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And so Moses is making sure, hey, guys, listen up. Don't just, don't just let this be white noise to you. Don't just let this like kind of, oh, okay, I've heard this before. No, make sure that we hear. We're actually going to hear this phrase pop up about five or six different times throughout the book of Deuteronomy, chapter six, that we're going to get back to in a little while, in a few, few weeks. That's how it starts. Listen, O Israel, make sure that you hear this. And I think it's a really important thing for us to be reminded. Are we listening? Are we truly listening? Not just with our ears, but with our hearts, with our minds, with our hands? Are we listening to God's word and actually hearing it, living it, doing it? And Moses is saying, Israel, make sure you do not miss this. Don't, don't zone out. Don't pull up Instagram and see what's happening. Like, let's actually listen to what's going on. Let's hear what God has to say. And I think it's the challenge for us today. But not just today, it's the challenge for us every time we open up the word of God. Listen, oh, Luke. Listen, oh, fill in your name to hear the words that God has to say and be ready to, to go and to do that. And so what we're going to begin to see is as we dive into chapter 5, there is this shift that begins to happen with the way that Moses was teaching. In chapters 1 through 4, it's all about our God. That's the phrase, the Lord our God, our God, our God. When we dive into chapter 5, for the next 24 chapters, it's no longer going to be our God, it's going to be your God. There's going to be a shift that's happening. Moses is moving more into a teacher to help people understand that is, he's your God. So let's look at this. Chapter 5, verse 2 through, through 6. And you guys are going to catch the this, this shift here. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive today. At the mountain of the Lord's, at the mountain the Lord spoke to you face to face from the heart of the fire. I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord, for you were afraid of the fire and did not want to approach the mountain. He spoke to me, and I passed these words on you. This is what he said: I am the Lord your God. You guys, you guys see it? Our God. Now, now it's your God. It's, it's really subtle, but I think it's really significant for us, especially in light of what he says in verse 3. He says, the Lord did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive today. It's, it's time for us 
to take some responsibility. This is what Moses is charging and challenging the people. Hey, it's time for you to take responsibility for your own faith. It's not, all, it's not about your, your parents' faith. It's not about your ancestors' faith. It's not about your friends' faith. It's not about the faith of our culture. It's about your faith. Are you taking responsibility for this covenant? Are you stepping into this relationship that God has for you? It's about you. Now, community-wise, like we need each other, of course. But it's not just our church's faith. It is my faith. In this, am, I, am I believing these words of God? Am I following him? Am I stepping into this relationship that he is offering to all of us? This is, the, this is the shift that is happening here. Sometimes I wonder, how many of us in the room are floating by on somebody else's faith? It's like, oh, I have to be here. Or, or somebody might get mad. My grandma might get upset. Or, or my mom might get mad if I don't come. So here I am. Like, who, how? Or have we made it personal? Have we made this commitment like, no, this is about me and, and what I say to be true about God. And this is what I believe about him. And so the book of Deuteronomy is an invitation. It's an invitation to get to know God. And last week we talked about how we are invited to know him through memory. Today it's about how we're invited to know him through, through worship. So just uh, if you guys didn't see this last week, here we go again. We are invited to know God through worship. And so maybe when we say the word worship, there's a lot of different things that pop into your mind. Maybe a lot of us probably think what we're doing on a Sunday morning. Like we think, okay, our, our worship service together. So we think of things like, like prayer. We think of things like communion, singing songs, reading the scriptures, having community together. Maybe that's what you think about when you think of worship. Maybe you think about your quiet time, your, your time of personal Bible study and, and reading God's word and growing. Maybe that's what you think of. Yes, and, and it's, it's a bit more than that. It's not just that, but, but it's more than that. It's certainly, it's part, but it's not the whole. If you're reading along in the book that we're kind of focusing and centering this series off of, he, he gives this definition of what worship is. I thought this was really helpful. It's in page 28, if you were reading in the book. But it says this, The heart of worship, I would suggest, is far more simple. It is beholding and adoring something. Think of that. That's, that's the description of worship, beholding and, and adoring. Now, adoring and beholding aren't good in themselves, right? It, it matters what we, what we are adoring. It matters what we are beholding. Like if I say that I adore gossip, it's not a good thing. If I behold violence, not a good thing. So it's a matter of what we behold. It's a matter of what we adore that determines whether it's a good thing or whether it's, it's a bad thing. So I think the question is, what do you adore? What do you behold? What are you actually worshiping? And it's a matter of what, not a matter of if. Because we all are worshiping something. Whether or not it's God or someone, something, something else. Like we, are, we all worship something. We are worshiping beings. And so the question is, what are we worshiping? And, and Timothy Keller writes a book called Counterfeit Gods. Well, he writes a lot of books, but in one of his books, it's called Counterfeit Gods. And he talks about this idea of idolatry or what we are worshiping. And he uses, he talks about this basic metaphor that the Bible uses for idolatry. We, people love their idols, people trust their idols, and people obey their idols. And I thought that was really helpful. So just ask yourself, what are you trusting? What are you loving? What are you obeying? 
The answers to those questions kind of help us to begin to see what it is that we are actually worshiping, what our idols actually are. And so he goes on in the book and he says this, he says, idols capture our imagination. So what I want you guys to do is I just want you to close your eyes for just a second. And I'm going to, I'm just going to ask a few questions and I want you guys to give me a moment to think through these and see what answers kind of pop into your mind. So when we think about idols, we can locate them in our daydreams. What do you enjoy imagining? What is your fondest dreams? Idols give us a sense of, of being in control so we can look for them in our nightmares. What is it if you lost it would make it seem like life isn't worth living? What is it that you cling most tightly to? They can give us a, our idols, we can locate them by looking at our, our most unyielding emotions. What makes you uncontrollably angry or anxious? or discouraged. Here's, a, here's another question. What is the last thing you think about before you go to sleep? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? You can, you can open your eyes. These, these, in a lot of ways, they start, they start zeroing in on what it is that we actually worship. What is our idols? And, and maybe you're like me. When you think of someone worshiping idols, you, you automatically go to something really bad. Right, like that, that's my fault. My immediate thought is like, okay, bad things. Maybe that's where you go. Like somebody who worships like consumerism. Like we would all say going and just buying more and more and more and more stuff, like it's not a great thing. And so we, maybe that's the God that you think of. Or maybe it's the God of like, God of sex, where we do all these things or whatever, no one can tell me what to do. And we think of that God, we would all say, okay, that's, that's probably not, that's definitely not a good thing. Like we would kind of all agree with, with those things. Or, or the God of violence, maybe you just love violence. We would all say, that's not a good thing. And, and sure, those are idols. Those are things that we maybe worship. But I think the greater danger lies not in the bad things, but in the good things that end up making terrible gods. So as I think about this, like, I, I love my kids. My kids are amazing. I love Ava, Emma, incredible girls. Here's the thing about them. They make terrible gods because they were never created to be gods. I love my wife. She's awesome, but she's a terrible God because she was never created to be God. I love my job. I love the fact that I get to study God's word for a living, that I get to share it with people. It's, it's incredible. My job makes a terrible God because it was never created to be God. Like think about this. Maybe, you've, maybe you work really hard because you want to give your family a better life. That's a great thing until it becomes a God, and then it gets everything all messed up. And we begin to see some of these things that happen is, is if I make my kids a God, it's a, it's a terrible thing. It's not fair to me, it's not fair to them because they are never going to be able to give me what God can give me. You make your spouse a God, it is only going to lead to letdown because they cannot do what God is supposed to do. And here's the thing, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a destructive thing. Like having kids, kids are great. Spouses are great. But when they become the ultimate thing, when they became, become the thing that is meant to give me my value, that is meant to give me my worth, that is meant to bring me satisfaction, when it's meant to give me what only God can give me, it becomes destructive. Just picture this idea, kind of like a, like a pyramid. 
Like if you have God on the top, everything else under God, it starts to kind of fall into place. Like when we are worshiping God correctly, when we live for him, top priority in our lives, like everything else begins to balance out and starts to work out. Yeah, there'll still be times where we'll get, we'll get messed up. There'll be times where things get a little out of, out of whack. But for the most part, we put God on, on top. We try to live for him. We worship him first. Everything else begins to fall into place. You put something else on top, everything else is in chaos. Everything else is, is going crazy. And what we begin to see is God understands that this is true of the people of Israel. They have spent their lives wandering in the wilderness. They have spent their lives going through difficult things. They are about to cross into the promised land, this land that God has said, this is a good, a fertile, a wonderful land that you are about to go into. And God, God says, hey, when you get there, be careful. Because the temptation is going to be, no longer do I have to rely on God for the bread from the sky to feed me. Now there's going to be plenty. And there's going to be a lot. And God knows our tendency to start buying into good things as well and making them ultimate things. So if you flip to chapter 8, verses 6 through 11, God gives the people of Israel this warning. Verses, chapter 8, verses 6 through 11, here's, here's what it says. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God has bringing you into a good land that is flowing with a land of flowing streams and pools of water, with fountain and springs that grush, gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plenty and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Catch this, verse 11. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that your plenty, that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commandments, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. Like he knows. And so one of the things that God is doing for us in this, he's inviting us to know him through, through our worship. So the text is a call to, to behold, to adore, to worship God, and to do so correctly. So let's get back to chapter 5. Let's look at, at verse 6. It says this. It says, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. And Moses is going to get ready to share the, the Ten Commandments with us again. Um, but before he does that, he reminds the people that God has brought them out of slavery. Like, and maybe as you read that, you're like, okay, why, God, why would you do that? That doesn't seem to be really good for, for mental health. Like, may, like, God, I just quit having nightmares about this. Why would you bring it up? Lord, I'm still in counseling for this. Like, I have this breathing technique when anyone talks about it. I can't even see a mud brick, let alone a pyramid. Why would you bring this up? Like, that's, that's not what God is doing. But God is bringing this up because he is reminding them of his redemptive power. He's reminding them of the way that he has rescued them. He is reminding them of what he has done. And thus, because of his redemptive power, because the way he has rescued, they have a responsibility to him to follow him. And so he's reminding them of that. And so Moses, he goes on and he shares these, he shares these 10 commandments again. And one of the things, if you're reading along with us in the book, he says to, to look at these commandments, less as commandments, and more as a constitution. And I thought that was a really helpful analogy. Because if you think about a constitution that a, that a nation has, 
The Constitution describes what, as a people, we value. What is a people that, that we hold most dear? What is a people that we, we act and we live by? So that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're less of do this or else and more of a this is how you are to be. This is what we value. This is what the people of God, what we hold to be most dear. And so we begin to see this. This is the way that, that we are going to operate. This is the ethic and the ethos that we are going to be able to, to live out in our lives. And so he gives them to us. He says in, in verse 7, he gives us the first one. You must, have, you must not have any other God before me. So he's, he's inviting them in. It's an invitation. Hey, worship me and only me. And why would God have to say that, really? Like, in, in a world of, of in a time where there was multiple gods, there was a god of the moon and the sun and the stars and the sea and the soil and you name it, it was probably a, a god. And so God is saying, hey, don't worship them. Worship only, only me. And as I think about this commandment, like maybe, it's, maybe you're like me and you just wonder, like, why does God actually have to say this commandment? Like, as you just begin to the last week, we talked about what God has done. As you read through everything that God has accomplished, maybe you're reading through that commandment. It's like, why is that necessary? Like, with everything that God has done, why, why does he have to say that? And, and maybe, maybe we can look down on the Israelites and be like, okay, you guys are terrible. It's, that's fair. But like, we're, we're, we're the same way. So as we begin to see this, like, we have to remember the Israelites were people just like us. They have, they have parents whose, whose health are failing. They have spouses who have cancer. There's, there's dementia and there's Alzheimer's and there's, this, there's these, the strokes, there's heart attacks, there's stuff that is going on in these people. They have spouses that are infertile. They have these problems. They have the same issues that we have. And so they start turning to these other gods and they say, God, you haven't delivered here. God, you haven't, met, you haven't been with me here. And so they turn to these other gods. They start chasing after these other gods because that's our temptation too. You ever, have you ever in a moment of desperation turned to something that was a little questionable? I think we, think we all have. You ever had one of those moments where you were afraid of whether, whether God was going to provide the money that you needed for your family and to make ends meet, so you take on another job or you start pouring in 70 hours a week because you've got to make sure that you have enough? We're, we're just like the Israelites. We're, we're the same. We're the same people. And so the, the root of misplaced worship is a failure to truly believe that God wants what's best for us. Notice it's, it's misplaced worship because we all worship. So the heart of that, the root of our misplaced worship, when we start chasing after other things, is we believe that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. We believe that God doesn't want what's best for us. God doesn't care. Or maybe God is just not even paying attention anymore. And, and so that's what we begin to feel. We crack open the bottle after a long week of work because we need a little, we need to relax we, rather than turning to the God of comfort, we turn to, we turn to, turn to the bottle. Or we, we feel like, God, you haven't been meeting my emotional, my physical, you haven't been meeting my needs, so we go to the arms of another partner and someone else. We turn there instead of God. We don't trust him to do what he says he's going to do. We work multiple jobs, 70 hours a week, because we, we're just afraid that, that God isn't good enough that what he's going to give me is not enough, so I don't trust him. And so we're going to, we're going to misplace these worship, these beliefs. 
And so the heart of misplaced worship is a failure to believe that God is truly who he says he is, that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. And in verse, five, verse 9, God talks about how he is a jealous God. And sometimes maybe we can read that and be like, okay, the only reason God wants me to worship him is because he's jealous. It's not true. God wants us to worship him not just because he's a jealous God, because he's better. He can give us what no one else can give us. He is a better God. He knows what he has to offer. He knows how much more and how much fuller, how much better our life can be, how much value and meaning our life can have in relationship with him. C.S. Lewis, uh, perhaps you've heard of, heard of him. Uh, he, he has this talk called The Weight of Glory. And he shares this quote in, in this, and I think this is really powerful. Here's what he says. He says, It would seem that our God, our Lord, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And this is what God is reminding them. Guys, don't chase after other gods. Don't go make mud pies in the slum because they're a holiday at the sea that is offered. And what God has to offer is so much better. It's so much greater. And he goes on and the, the next commandment is, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of, any, of, of anything in heaven or on earth or in the sea. So the first is, is worship only me. The second is don't make, don't make any idols. And I think this is really important to tie in what we talked about last week with the power of our memory. So as we read through the book of Deuteronomy, the idea of, of images and, and icons and idols is replaced with memory. Because he's saying, well, we're not going to make any other gods. We're not going to do these things, but we are going to call to mind. We are going to remember these things. And so in the biblical world, people like they did not worship. They didn't bow down to like stone or, or, or different figurines. They bowed down to, to, the, to the deities that those represented. And maybe you think about that. Maybe like that's the command. You're like, well, whew, I've never done that one. I, there's not like a, I've never carved a household idol. There's not like a little idol on my mantelpiece. Like maybe you think that. But I think in the church that our idolatry, it, it begins to look a little different. That our idol making begins to look a little bit different. We at, we at best unintentionally or maybe even more at worst intentionally begin to craft a God that isn't the God that we see in the scriptures. We start to have this, this distorted view of God. So maybe we start thinking, okay, God just wants me to be happy. We don't see that in the scriptures, but uh, that sounds good. And so we start having this distorted view and we start worshiping that God. Or maybe we think, okay, God wants me to have a lot of money. And so we, we start worshiping a God that, that looks like, that wants me to have a lot of money or, or, or God who's my primary desire is to be successful. And so that's the God that we begin to worship. And we start having this distorted view of God. We, we start having a God that looks a whole lot like you and a whole lot less like, like God. And so that is why these two, these two commandments back to back is so significant. Because he's saying, hey, don't worship any other gods and don't make any other idols because you have to worship me and you have to worship me correctly. You have to worship the correct view of me. 
This is one of the most important things. This is why the invitation to, work, to know God through worship is so significant. Because when we do, we're turning back to the pages of Scripture. We're looking at the pages of Scripture to see, okay, is who God really is? Does that, actually, does that challenge what I think to be true about Him? Is the realities that we see in Scripture, is, does, that, does that line up with what, I'm, what I think to be true about God? And we, when, we, when we're in worship, we're driving, we're diving into this, we're grounding our lives back on the foundation of God's Word and the truth of what God says He is. I think that's why these next two verses are so important, following these two commands. In verses 9 and 10, it says, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for, I the, Lord, your, for, for the Lord your God, I am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other, for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, anybody who was with us in the start of the year, does that sound familiar? Anybody remember those names from uh, our God Has a Name series? The Lord passed before us and proclaimed the Lord. I'm not going to sing the whole thing. Like Stephen could do it. It'll sound better. But like we go through the names of God from Exodus 34. This is a repeat of that. He's telling us once again, here, here's God's name. And if you remember, like, God isn't just telling Moses. He isn't just telling the people of Israel, here's my name so you can put it in your contacts or your phone and know how to call me. His name is more than that. His name is his, his distinguishing markers. It's, it's who he is. It's, it's his character. And I think it's really important for us when, when, when we have these two commands, don't make idols, don't worship other gods. And then he says, because... He gives us not just a command, but he gives us God's character. He's making sure that we can understand this is who God is like. This is who he is. And so he's making sure that we know who the real God is, who he really is, what he is really like. If we don't, work, if we don't know God correctly, we won't worship him correctly. It's true. Like if I think God just wants me to be happy, I'm not going to actually worship the God of the Bible correctly because I'm, I don't I have a distorted I have a wrong view of him and so I don't know if you guys have ever played like one of these video games where you can make your own character anybody anybody ever done that or or maybe like when you turn on the the, the game system that makes you create a player and I don't know if you've ever tried to do that and make it to look like yourself it doesn't go very well now to be fair, games have evolved since I was playing games last. Maybe it's better now. But, but when I first was playing games, it's been about 10 years, 5 years since I've played video games. But like you would make a character that kind of looked like you and it looked more just like an egg with a face on it. Like that's just kind of how it looked. But you know, we, we attempt to make it look a little bit like us. And so I thought I would show you guys my, my Memojis. So here, here's a few of them on my iPhone. Um, so you can make like your own face and stuff and like send an emoji using your face. Uh, and so like clearly this is me. Like we got the, uh, got the praying hands here. This dude is really excited to wave at someone like, uh, and then the, the fear. All right. Is anybody confused? Which is the real me? Or, or, or is it the one on the screen? Like, oh, that's Luke. The guy you're talking like, no, like it's sort of. Looks like me, maybe. His ears don't have holes in it, don't know what that's about, but it doesn't really, I mean, yeah, kind of, but it's not actually me, right? 
And sometimes don't we do this with God? We start just kind of, oh, a little, we, we start picking and choosing. Okay, God, I, oh, I want the grace. I want the forgiveness. I want the mercy. We'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Oh, that social justice. Oh, I'll take that. Ooh, you want me to be humble? No, thanks. I want to be loud and proud. We're going we're gonna to leave that over here. Or, oh, you, ooh, you want me to be sacrificial with my money or sacrificial with my time? No, thanks. We'll leave that here. But I'll take these other things and we start creating these gods. We start creating these people, this person that we worship that looks a whole lot more like me than it does look like God. And so we are drawn back once again to the scriptures to be reminded of the foundation of the word. We are drawn back. This is an invitation to worship God because we need this in order to know him correctly. We have to know, we have to worship. We have to be in the scriptures. We have to be with one another. We've got to be praying. We've got to be worshiping God correctly in order to truly get to know him. Just yesterday, I was, uh, I was doing some, some building with, with Ava and Emma. We were making like, we had these magnetic blocks and we were making a uh, Ferris wheel. And, and so like we, we got this Ferris wheel almost made and Godzilla or, or Emma comes up and just like smashes it. And so Ava is just like, okay, here, we'll just start putting stuff back on top. I'm like, baby, that's not going to work. This thing is supposed to be a wheel and it's like all wonky. I was like, we got to start all the way back at the beginning. We got to get the foundation right or it's not going to hold this up. Same thing's true of us. If we don't have the fundamental truths about God set up, we can worship, but it's not going to be right. Like everything else is just going to be a little bit wonky. And even when we were spinning the Ferris wheel, something still wasn't right. It was click, click, click. It just wouldn't spin quite right because something just wasn't quite right. And so this is what this invitation is. It's, hey, let's, let's truly dive into worshiping him. Let's, let's challenge some thoughts that we thought we may have had about him. Let's see if what we believe about God or what we say we believe about God actually is in line with what the scriptures say to be true about God. And so this is what, what we see. We begin to, to do this. And even in verse 9 and 10, we see this. There's, there's this God of justice and judgment. And there's also this God of, of, of grace and of love. And so we have, to, we have to accept these truths. We have to take these things uh, to be true about God. And so God is offering us this invitation to truly know him to truly get to know him. And so, once again, here's the Ten Commandments that he shares for us, or the, the constitutions, if, if you want. It says, You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Honor your father and mother as the Lord has commanded you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not falsely testify or testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet. And so as you begin to, to walk through these 10 commandments, what's, what's fascinating, I think what's really important is the first four are all about our relationship with God. They're all about our worship. And the way that we worship him or whether or not we worship him. The next five are all about our ethics, things that we do. The tenth one is about our desires. And so as we're laying these out, it's, it's really clear. Like if we do not get worship right, there is no way we're going to get desires right. There's no way we're going to get our ethics right. Like they're all going to get thrown off. Once again, it's this foundational truth of believing God. We've got to get this one right. And this was another quote from the book I felt was really helpful. It says this, it says, we can't hope to have good behavior or virtuous desires 
if we worship the wrong thing. We don't have a chance to have these, these good behavior that God lays out for us or these desires that God has for us if we aren't worshiping God correctly. So flip to verse 29 of chapter 5. So the people, they say, we don't want to be close to God because if we hear his voice, we might die. And we're going to do, you, you intermediate for us and we'll do what he says. And, and the Lord replies back in verse 29, he says, Oh, that they would always have hearts like this, that they might fear me and obey all of my commands. And if they did, they and their descendants would prosper forever. Here's, here's the thing. Is obedience is one of the greatest demonstrations of love for God. Obedience is one of the greatest demonstrations of love for God. This is, this is what we see. Obey my commands. And if you guys want to this week, I encourage you to read chapters 5 through 11. This week I did that, and I just took my green highlighter, and I highlighted, highlighted, highlit, I think it's highlighted, Sure. Highlighted all the times that in the scripture, in these six chapters, that Moses says, keep these commands. Keep my commands. Listen to my commands. Hear my commands. And so here, here's a breakdown for you. Chapter 5, it's used seven times. Chapter 6, used eight times. Chapter 7, two times. Chapter 8, four times. Chapter 9, two times. Chapter 10, one time. Chapter 11, eight times. And I'm sure you guys were adding all of that up in your head, but just to help you out in case you weren't, 32 different times, six chapters, that Moses says, hey, obey these commands. Keep these commands. Listen to these commands. And so once again, it's, it's this invitation. It's this invitation to obey. Because maybe one of the greatest ways that we can describe worship is, is our obedience to God, to doing what he says, to living the way that we are meant to live. So church, are you obeying? Are you worshiping only God? Are you obeying him? Are you doing what he says to do? And as we begin to read through the history of Israel, we realize very quickly that Israel screwed this up a lot. Like one of the things that we see through the first few books of the Bible is this beautiful principle called the year of Jubilee. And so every 50 years, Israel was to have this year of Jubilee where the land would rest, slaves would be set free, debts would be covered. And it's just an amazing thing that God set up for the people. The problem is there is no biblical or extra biblical like evidence that Israel actually did this. They, they could have, but not enough where it made any historical difference. And something so relevant, something so life-changing would have made history. And so we see, like, did Israel even do this thing that God has set up for them? And we see through the commands, like, they, they failed a lot. This, this week, as I was reading through Jubilee, Israel may or may not have done this. Definitely not as, many, not as often as they were told. They may not have released the captives. They may not have, may, may not have forgiven the debts. But Jesus is a, a true and better Israel. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, he paid the debts right? He paid off the debts. He, he, he brought freedom. There was no longer bondage and slavery in the world because he defeated that once and for all. So once again, church, are you obeying? Are you, are you worshiping God in, in obedience and doing what he's called us 
to do. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you.